The following for the city sermon is from our sermon series by Pastor Scott Rising entitled Feast for Failures from the book of Luke. We hope you enjoy it. All right. Hey, so Jesus last week just told a parable, right? If you were paying attention, the parable was pretty pointed and it was pretty clear. He's coming to basically tear down their system that has been abusing God's people for quite some time. He's talking about the the temple's pecking order, right? And he's going to tear it down stone by stone. That makes for a very tense moment. (laughs) And that's that's where we're at. We're going to look at six confrontations throughout chapter 20. We looked at one last week. We're going to see another one now. Um, And all of this is revolving around the fact that Jesus has declared he is the cornerstone. He's the cornerstone in which you either build your life or when you stand before him in judgment, you will be broken. And, And he was very clear about that. And the Pharisees understood it. The Sadducees understood it. The chief elders understood it. And they don't want to build their lives on Christ. They want to build their lives on their own system. Right? And it's not much different than any of us until Christ calls us to himself. Luke 20, 19 is where we finished out last week. But it is a great transition to where we're at right now. So I'm going to read it once again. It says, The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. Meaning, they know exactly what Christ is saying, and they sure would love to kill him right now, but it's bad press, right? Because all the people around are like, we really like this guy. You know, he's, he's feeding us. He's healing some folks. He's full of compassion. He's full of grace and truth. <sighs> How can we set a trap? And that's really what we're stepping into right now. We're not going to step into the trap, but that's what they want to do with Christ. They're, they're trying to lay a trap so that they can get the people or Rome to turn against them. So that's the context. So let's look at 20, 20 through 22. So they watched him and they sent spies. <laughs> By the way, it, religious spies are definitely not a good time, right? Um, if you've ever done that, maybe get a different career. Um, they pretended to be sincere. This is fake religion. That they might catch him in something, he said, so as to deliver him to the authorities and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Once again, the aim of the spies is to set a trap for Christ. They wanted to take a position, right? Because either way, no matter how he answers, they think we're going to be able to pit him against the people that everyone likes right now. They all seem to be pro-Jesus or Rome. And Jesus sees it coming, right? Um, They're really asking, are God's people exempt from giving this tax to a foreign power? That's their question. Jesus, are you going to be loyal to Israel or are you going to essentially cower under Rome? That's, that's their question. Do you, do you see the trap, right? Even if you don't, Jesus did. And on that day, listen, Jesus, he's so, I mean, to say he's so wise is, is such a, I mean, he's all-knowing, right? He's fully God. He's fully man. Um, he sees right through it. 
right? In one sense, if Jesus says, yeah, you should pay the tax, then the religious leaders of that time would just report, he said you shouldn't pay the tax. They would report him to Rome, right? And, and Rome would just crush this dude because you're, you're, you're causing a rift in the emperor in this kingdom, and we're not going to allow it, right? You can see that. But on the other hand, if, the, if he said, yeah, pay the tax, then, well, he might be seen as a traitor to the people of Israel. Because remember, not everybody who's pro-Jesus really understands the work that Christ is there to do. They think Messiah is coming to set up shop. They're, they're excited that he's going to come in and usher in what they think is the kingdom, which means crush Rome, establish Israel once again. So Jesus sees this, and, and he sees their smooth and sweet, flattering words, and he can, he can sniff it out, right? Um, and it is flattery, right? When we read those words, it's just dripping with grossness, right? We know, oh, that you're a great teacher and that you teach so wonderfully. Oh, we just love you. Uh, flattery is dangerous, it's, it's really dangerous. I think when we think about the dangerous sins, we always think about these great things of evil that we think of moral reasons in uh, our culture, right? Killing. Killing is a great evil, right? Um, but so is lying. So is flattery. And, and, and so listen to what Pastor Kent Hughes says about flattery. He says, flattery is the reverse mirror of gossip. Gossip involves saying behind a person's back, what you would never say to his face. Flattery is saying to a person's face what you would never say behind his back. Right? This is so easy to do. And actually, it's so applauded in our culture. I mean, we even, oh gosh, we work to get it. Like, we love the fake words. It makes us feel good, especially on Instagram. And I'm not saying everyone does this, but we just want a little pat on the back. Could you recognize what I'm doing? I, I would tell us, church, we need to be on guard against flattery. It just comes so easily, right? Why? Well, because biblically speaking, we're all children of Satan until Jesus saves us and adopts us into the family. And those old ways are hard to break, right? We learned some things from our, our let's say, our bad dad, right? And, and they're still there, and we still got to work them out. Satan, our great enemy, is very slick, and that's how he sets traps for people, Right? He, he, he loves to poison souls with flattery. He just loves to do it. And we, just, we don't think this is bad. We just think it's, ah, it's just kind of niceness. Um, when he can't threaten you with death and persecution, he will set a trap with flattery and niceness. And I, I think that is the trap of most church cultures often, right? We're always thinking about don't do these bad behaviors, but flattery, well, that's not a big deal. Uh, we should not be ignorant of his schemes. Uh, by the illusion of peace, by the way, he destroys many. I mean, he really does. Just, just think over the Bible. Think about Adam and Eve, right? Um, they were seduced by a very slick serpent with smooth talk, <laughs> right? Um, how about Samson and Solomon? If you know your Bibles, they were not ruined by foreign enemies. They were actually ruined by smooth talking ladies. It happens, right? Uh, how about Hezekiah? He was not ruined by invading forces. He was actually ruined by the flattery of the opponents. And that's how they seduced him. And oh, by the way, spoiler alert, um, Judas is going to betray Jesus with a kiss. 
So this isn't some little innocent thing. And I think sometimes we, we, we make the mistake of thinking it's not a big deal. But the Bible is very clear. I mean, Proverbs 26, 28 says this. A lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Proverbs 29, 5 says, A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. Um, I don't think it's a big stretch for us if you've been in the Bible long enough and if you've been thinking about the words of God to know that the, the words we speak matter greatly. I mean, it really does. Uh, Proverbs 18.21 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruits, right? So many people have been destroyed because of something that someone has said. Right? I think you, you know, if you can even think back into your own life, somebody has said something to you, and it probably sticks. Right? That you, you hear it in the background. might have been mom, might have been dad, uh, might have been a friend, might have been a bully at school. But most of the time, even though that happens and that's awful, it's, this, it's the person that's really close to you that probably wounds the most. The things we speak, and I would say write, type, and sign if need be, can be, can be the death of governments. It can be the death of marriages, it can be the death of friendships, it can be the death of churches, and, and it can be the death of missionary advancements, all because of this little thing called the tongue. And the Bible has a lot to say about that. But on the flip side, what we just read, this, this, this things we say, the things we type, the, the things we uh, write out can give life. They can give life. They can, they can give hope. They can give cheer. They can actually make marriages sweet. They can make friendships and families strong. They can make churches healthy, right? So the way that we interact with our words matters greatly. I, I, I don't think it would be a shocking thing to tell you. I'm, and I'm working on this, Lord help me. I'm like the king of sarcasm. Now I realize that's not helpful, many times in relationships that I have because they don't understand that. And so I've been, let's say with the, the, the power of the Spirit being coming more aware and trying to change that. Just because I don't think it's helpful. Um, and I've realized that things that I say that I thought were funny weren't funny for people. And so I'm realizing that as I get older and as I walk with the Lord. And I think, well, you, you realize that too. If you have children, you know how powerful a word can be, good or bad. You can crush their little spirits, or you can cheer them up in a healthy way. The words you speak, though, get this, it's all whatever's captivating your heart. It really is. And what's captivating the heart of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief elders? I don't think it's a shock. It's power. It's control. And Jesus is a threat to all of that, and that is why they're trying to set a trap. Since that's exactly what Jesus said in Luke 6, 45, he said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So, so the things we say are, are coming out of the spring or the wellspring of our heart. That's not always the case. You might say something a, a little bit off center and you don't mean them to be that way. You're maybe a bad communicator in that way. But if you recognize it, you should be quick to ask for forgiveness, even though that's not what you meant, and try to think about and be more careful about our words. But, but it's clear that their desire to cling to power is what's ruling their hearts. And so look at Jesus' response. By the way, he sees right through it, right? That's what it says. Look at 23 through 26. He perceived their craftiness, 
And he said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. (laughs) By the way, we don't get to walk with Jesus like in person, right? But if we did, if he follows up your question with a question of his own, it's not really good. If you just read the scriptures, he's Oh, you think you're setting a trap for me? Well, that's cute. I have a question for you, right? And so there he goes, and he asks this question. And the the religious elite of that time, man, they don't see the trap necessarily that's coming, and they don't even realize they're already in the mouth of the lion. He's got them. They think they're trapping him, and he's like, "Mm, not so quick. And he has them by asking that question. Why? Because they should have realized when he asked the question, can I, can I see the silver coin, this denarius? Can I see that? What they ought to have said, we don't have one of those. They're not in my pocket. But instead, they're like, oh, here you go. Why, why do I say that? Well, because a denarius um, is a small silver coin and I don't expect you to know this, but if you were to look one up online, you would see Tiber- Tiberius Caesar's image on it with the inscription. Here's the inscription. It doesn't say in God we trust. It says Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. So he's like the son of God. Think about it that way. On the reverse side of most of those coins, what you would have is you'd have a female figure and, and she would be facing to the right and she would be seated on a throne wearing a crown, holding a scepter in her right hand and in the other palm, she would have an olive branch in the left. And here's what it said, Pontifex Maximus, which means chief priest. Okay, so now think about this coin, Right? Tiberius, you're, you're some divine being like the son of God, and apparently most people thought it was her wife at that time. She's the high priestess, right? And if we want to connect to you, this is the way, and it's through money. This thing's dripping with idolatry. By the way, where's Jesus again? Oh, that's right. He's in the temple <laughs> where he just tossed over some tables, and coins went flying. Remember that? Right? That just happened. It's clear, and we've seen it all throughout this, this, this Luke's gospel. These guys are, are idol worshipers. They're manipulating God's people to get what they really want. They're there to be a signpost, essentially, to direct people to God. But actually, they're just abusing their power, and Jesus knows it. And so by having this coin on them, literally, they actually they incriminate themselves. They incriminate themselves. One writer said, by bringing such an unsanctioned, portable, graven image into God's temple, they would have been a transgression of the second commandment against graven images, right? This was actually blasphemy. So, so okay, nice history lesson, dude. What's that have to do with me in 2024? I think it has a lot to do with us. Don't miss the powerful picture and the punchline. Look at the punchline. The punchline is, he says, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. I think it's easy in a text like this to to miss the forest by staring at a tree, right? And we're going to try hard not to do that. 
And I think that's what happens in a text like this often, is we get so lost in the detail of a coin or what this meant or what that meant. So what is the situation that we have going on here? Well, we read this and, and we begin to think about maybe our responsibilities to how we interact with the government. I think that's a good thing to think. We go on about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. We start to wax eloquently about how they're sacred and secular and how do we live in that. And I think those things are all fine. What's it look like to have civil disobedience? What's it look like to obey the government? But I got to tell you, those are all good questions and they all have a place. But it, and, and you need them for a biblical worldview. But I don't think that's the point. The point is, he says, pay back to God the things that are God's. When Jesus says that, he minimizes Caesar. He minimizes him, right? For the pawn that he is. You're so worried about this guy. You're so worried about what you do with this guy. But you're not worried about paying back the things that are God. Think about the parable right before, right? He sends servants to go and collect. Well, they don't give it. They kill them. I'm going to send my son to collect. They don't give it. They kill him. And, and he's saying, well, someone's going to pay for this. And, and what we do know is because we, we're not in real time while this is unfolding, the one who pays for it is Christ willingly lays down his life to pay for the sins of the world. And they can't see it. This whole series of questions is an attempt to divert attention from the real problem. What's the real problem? They don't want God to rule over them. That's it. It's, I don't think it's more complicated than that. So Jesus, knowing this, throws a little shade in the direction of Rome. But what he also does is he brings it right back to the hard-heartedness and the stiff neck of the people who say they love God. And, and that's, I think, where we have to work. Meaning, he's saying, you're worried about whether you should give a coin, some coin to an earthly ruler, but you're not even concerned about what you're giving to God in the form of worship, right? And I think the same is true for us. I mean, follow the logic. The coin belongs to Caesar. Why? And it really doesn't as we keep following the logic. Well, because it has his image. Okay, cool. So if it bears his image, and humans bear the image of who? God. And Caesar is a human, which means he's an image bearer, that's good, you're following the logic, then God owns that too. Why? Because God owns all things, including you, including me. Uh, so if it's appropriate to give Caesar the things that bear his image, then it's only appropriate response in worship is to give the things that belong to God what is his, which is what? Everything. <laughs> Whew. Okay, now it's, it's very fitting for 2024 and every year after that. Think about it. What are those things? All of humanity. Why? Because all of humanity bears the image of God. And, and by the way, we should thank God for what's called the Imago Dei, meaning that all human beings have intrinsic value, not because of anything they do, but only because of whose they are. And, and you know, I've, I've heard people try to argue that you know, Christianity is not great for the world, and I would say we'll study history. Um, because Christianity as a whole is amazing for history and for humanity. Why? Because we fight for human rights. Why? Because we believe God's word. And therefore, all humans, all humans have intrinsic value, 
right? And, and so he's bringing it right back to the garden. Remember, Jesus's Bible was the Old Testament. It wasn't old. It was very real. <laughs> and the New Testament was, let's say, being lived out and will be written, but it was not written at that time. So he's going back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Let's look at it. Then God said, let us make man in our, he means humanity, in our image and after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Uh, the teaching that Jesus is going after is so closely linked to Jesus as the cornerstone of life, right? Um, it's all connected. Well, why do I say that? Because Jesus as the cornerstone of life, last week we talked about, he gives stability and he gives alignment to life, right? So the, the forest that Jesus is, let's say, teaching is that our primary responsibility to God cannot be limited to chump change, to Sunday morning worship right? To singing, right? We think worship primarily often is, is singing. Oh, we're worshiping now. I get that. I'm sorry that you were taught poorly by many churches. Let's say singing can be worship. It can be worship. Hopefully it is worship. What makes it worship? Well, the posture of your heart, right? You can sing lots of words and not be a, a, a form of worship that pleases God. Preaching is worship. Giving of tithes and offerings is worship. Working with the kids downstairs, worship. Slinging great coffee to the glory of God as a barista can be worship. Jesus wants your whole life to be worship. He wants the, the overflow of what's in the heart to come out into your life 24-7. And, and, and if that's new to you, and that was very new to me uh, late in the game, as I was walking with the Lord, because I just thought, well, it's a Sunday morning kind of thing. And if we do a little Bible study on Wednesday, cool. But if you just think that, that this is religion, now in a sense it is. We're going to get to James next year. And James is going to break down what is true religion. That's really his aim in that letter. But if you just think that God just wants your money, you're sadly mistaken. If you, if you just think that God just wants your time or your talents, you're sadly mistaken. And you're wrong. God's demands upon a person's life is infinitely greater than that. It's just infinitely greater than that. He wants all of who you are. Now, depending how you know the Lord, that could be yes, or that could be, uh, uh, I don't want to give all. I mean, he wants everything. Everything. Right? I remember hearing it that way. I will tell you right now, he won't settle for anything less. Why? Because he loves you. <laughs> because he loves you. He's not trying to do something to you. He's trying to do something for you. Just like he's trying to do for the, the chief priests, the elders, and the Sadducees. He loves them. Don't ever get it in your mind that he's not loving them. His love looks different to them. Why? Because they're hard-hearted. Right? I was talking to a friend this week. I said some jobs require a ball-peen hammer. If you're putting a little finishing nail, you gotta, it's probably not even the right hammer. So a carpenter in here is like, nope, wrong. <laughs> but but, but you, do, you just do a little tap-tap. You don't use a sledgehammer for that. But if you want to knock down a wall, you got to use that. He knows what, what tool to use to get these men who are leading his people to wake up. And they need a different word. It's still compassion. 
Jesus is always full of truth and grace. It just doesn't look like the he gets us movement. By the way, I have lots of things to say about that, but today's not the day for that. I'm, I'm cool with it. I'm hoping that the Lord uses that in a way that draws people to him. The question isn't, does he get us? It's the question is, do you get him? Do you get him? And I would say that that movement gets an aspect of him. Well, he's so much more than that. They don't get him. The leaders of that time don't get him. The question becomes, and do you get him? Do you understand? He wants all of you, and he won't settle for anything less. So here's, here's our point. God has made us in his image and has given us all we have. Therefore, the only proper response is to happily give our all in worship. Look, I, there's many texts I think that Jesus probably had in his mind when he was, was speaking to them about give God what is God's. Here's one, Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear, and, and fear here is, it's awe, it's majesty, it's his holiness, to fear the Lord, your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today, I love this, for your good, for your, for your good, right? So, so what is it he wants? Oh, he, he just wants everything. Cool. Cool. No problem. Check. And if you think you can say that, you're not paying attention. The question becomes is, who can do that? <laughs> that should be the question. Not like, all right, give me my list. Let's go. I want everything. I want your heart, mind, soul, strength. I want all of you. And I want all of you in a way that magnifies all of who I am. That's worship. And then you just say, I, I, I can't do that. And you'd be right. Which is why it's so important that we always keep the gospel in view. No matter where we're at in the Bible, that we always keep the good news of Jesus Christ in view. Which is that in every place that we failed, in every place that Adam failed, Jesus, who is, let's say, the second Adam, wonderfully obeyed. His perfect life, his substitutionary death, his triumphant resurrection. He's now seated at the right hand of God. And if he's not, then we've got no chance to please a holy God. But because that is true, all the rumors are true. Jesus has lived the perfect life. He has died a substitutionary death. He has triumphantly resurrected. Therefore, because all of that's true, you and I, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, can happily go to him. And guess what? He's happy to receive you. Why? Because Jesus has done it all. It's, it's finished. It's finished. And, and so... I think, man, we're working hard to make sure that that's in your head. We keep on pounding away at the word, and we're saying, oh, Holy Spirit, 
We can't do the work that has to happen here for people to really believe that. And by the way, you and I are all a little bit of belief and unbelief, just so you know that. There are areas in your life that have not conformed to the beauty of who Christ has revealed him to be. That's sanctification. He's continually working that out. You will be sanctified one day, fully, finally, forever at the moment of glorification. But until then, it's, as Martin Luther would say, it's a, we're walking by faith. We're realizing, oh, I don't line up here. We're confessing. We're repenting. We're believing. We're confessing. We're repenting. We're believing. Not so that I can be saved, but because I am. And he's working that out. And I think we get this for the most part. However, everything Christ did, listen to me very carefully, is so that you and I might live a holy life. And I'm not sure everybody gets that. Why do I say that? Look at the end of verse 13 in Deuteronomy. It says, for your good. My concern is that we're not convinced of that truth. My concern is you do not actually believe. And, and by the way, if that's where you're at, oh, it's so free to come and confess to the Lord. Why? Because you'll be met with grace, forgiveness, and transformation, and empowerment, right? So we come and we say, I don't actually know if all the Word of God is actually for my good. I don't know if I trust. There's that word. You, right? I trust you with my salvation, just not my bank account. Really? Just work that backwards. You trust God with your eternity, but you don't trust God with your checking account. Mm. Okay. That's between you and the Lord. You got to work that out. So many times I think people, when they view the Bible, they view it from a legalistic view that this book's trying to keep you from life. (laughs) That's the lie. That his, that his commands are somehow burdensome. He's the author of life, the one who's come to give you life, and life abundantly is keeping you from joy. He is infinite joy. He has come to give you life ab- abundantly. And we think we know better. We think that, that, that somehow, if I read the Word, I might know something I don't know now, then I have to obey it. Right? We don't say it like that, but that is what we say. But, but you've got to change your mind. This book is from a loving God who wants you to enjoy life with Him. How long? Forever. When? Now. I think we think, well, when I die, I'll get serious about Jesus. <laughs> right? Like, Till then. <laughs> you know, I mean, so, so here's the question. What's the motivation for living a surrendered life unto King Jesus, and what does that look like? I would tell you, we, we, we're going to spend the rest of my life working through that. Hopefully, whoever comes up here after that will continue that journey. Because that is the question. And, and so, I want us to look at a text that I think is, is seminal or foundational to the life of a Christian. As a matter of fact, I, I'll give you a little challenge. Memorize this text. Take this week and memorize this text. You can do it, I promise you. It's actually not even that hard. I think you might even enjoy it. Romans 12, 1 through 2. I'm going to read it in whole, and we're going to spend the rest of our time working through it. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, verse 1 is our primary motivation to living a surrendered life happily unto King Jesus. Why do I say that? Primarily two words. First one's therefore. <laughs> You're like, how is that motivation? Well, you have to know what it's there for, right? What it's there for is the, the, the previous 11 chapters, which is what? The gospel. It, it is the gospel. It is everything that Christ has done to save a rebellious, hell-bent, sinful people. While we were weak, while we were ungodly, Christ Jesus died for us, those who believe. And, and so it just, man, Paul works hard to just pull back the curtain of God's love. And not some wishy-washy, vague love like care bears and flowers and lollipops, but like, no, the severity of God and the mercy of God coming together at the cross of Christ, and he did that willingly. His father did not have to twist his arm for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. Why? Because he loves you. He loves you. Who's you? All of you. The world. Christ died to save sinners, right? So that, that therefore matters. And so then that indicates that we give ourselves to God because of the gospel, all that we've learned in this good news, right? And so it's a response that you and I are justified, declared righteous in the sight of God through faith alone because of what Christ has done alone, okay? And that's the second point of that little intro. By, notice, the mercies of God. Chapter, we're not teaching Romans, but chapter 12 through 16, if you want, it's basically how you live in light of the truth of the first 11 chapters, okay? First 11 chapters, all what God has done in Christ. 12 through 16 is what we do in living in light of that. But if you're going, so you don't get lost in faith and works, and, uh, and uh, you better hang a big banner that says by the mercies of God over 12 through 16, because it's all mercy. It's all grace, and it's all grace-driven, but it is, there's commands, and you've been empowered to do them, and oh, by the way, therefore, you're good. Therefore, you're good. And so, in short, the only sufficient motivation for the surrendered life unto King Jesus is gratitude to the grace of God. Do you see that? It's the gospel. It's not to get love. It's not so he'll, he'll be pleased with you. In Christ, he is pleased with you, and he loved you while you were a rebel. If you get this, I'm telling you, it will change everything about how you approach your walk with God. And that's why Paul, it says, urges us or appeals to us. Oh, he's laying himself out. He's looking you deep in the eyes, and he's saying, oh, get this. Live this way. Why? Because there's real power. So to his fellow Christians, he says two things. One, present or offer yourself, offer your bodies. And bodies here does mean individually, but I think church bodies to the Lord. Present yourself. That is your sacrifice. By the way, it says living, and that matters. Some weird religions say sacrifice yourself, and they don't mean in a living sense. They mean go die for this false God. Our God sends his son put on flesh to die for us. Wildly different than all other religions. 
wildly different. Well, Christianity is just another form of religion. No, it's not. Not like that. Not like that. You read other books, religious books, they would say you ought to die for your God. People set themselves on fire and do all sorts of crazy things in the names of false gods. Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, comes and dies for you. One's about evolution, working your way to God. One's about revelation, God coming to us and doing it all. So why would we not trust him to give our lives in glad submission? To to be a living sacrifice is just meaning that I'm happily at God's disposal. Happily. You might be like, I don't know if I always feel the emotion of happy. Okay, I would say this. Let your emotions catch up. Let your, let your emotions be informed by the word. Here's what else I would say to that. I have a lot to say to that. But I would tell you that God does command your emotions. Don't believe me? Read the Psalms. Over and over. Rejoice. What's that? What involves emotion? Right? Sing to the Lord. By the way, guys, gals, Americans are a little awkward when it comes to singing. Sing to the Lord. Most of you do. Oh my goodness, I love when you all sing. There's times where I actually don't sing. I listen to my brothers and sisters sing to the Lord. But sing. Sing. Sing happily. You don't have a good voice. It doesn't matter. Sing. Sing to the Lord. Why? Because this is what it means to be a living sacrifice at the tip, at least. So let's keep on going, because this is exactly what Jesus meant in Luke 9, 23 through 24. He said, if, remember way back then, (laughs) it's like a year ago, if anyone would come after me, he's, he's talking to his disciples, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, right? For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Meaning, if you, he's talking to everyone in that moment, but the religious leaders, they want to save their lives. And he's saying, you, you, you got to surrender that. You got to pick up a cross. You got to follow me daily. That means daily you're waking up and you're saying, it's no longer my life. Lord, when it was my life, and it really wasn't even my life then, I really royally jacked it up most days, if we could just be honest. So now I happily say it's no longer my life, but it's your life. And, and oh God, I, I want to know your ways. Lead me. Give me wisdom. Give me power to follow you, to trust you. And when something comes my way, I know that it's not for me because your revealed word has shown it. Let me just let me just have the power to turn from that and to trust you because your ways are better. They're for my good, right? And, and so this is everything that Jesus has been teaching along the way. That is living a surrendered life, which is why Paul says that is your spiritual worship. Don't, don't miss those words. What does that mean? Well, it means that the surrendered life is to be a daily giving over of our lives, of our bodies, of our intellect, in obedience to God, and motivated by the view of God's grace and mercy in Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is Christianity 101. You don't go on from here. You just go deeper into it. Well, when are we going to learn the deep stuff? This is deep. And if you're like, well, I think it's scratching the surface, I'd say you're not thinking. 
The gospel radically reorients our lives. So that we're no longer hoping and seeking to please others or even ourselves, but we're actually thinking about, does this please my father? Does this make him look great? Or does this make me look great? See, the gospel has to, I mean, it both motivates and frees us to live the lives that please God, right? We've been freed to live that life. Prior to that, we were in bondage, in the domain of darkness. We only lived to please ourselves, and, and God has rescued us from that domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, and given us his spirit, and now we're free to obey to do the things that God has given us for our good, for his glory, and for the good of our neighbors. By the way, if you ever get confused on what is ministry, ministry, simply put, is this. It is God-centered, others-focused. That's it. I think of my job as your pastor, as one of your pastors, simply in three primary ways of function, okay? So if it helps you to think about your life in this way, great. Prayer, proclamation, and people. That's my, that's, that's my life. Now, you have meetings. Well, the meetings are about people. And if they're not, I'm not coming. I'm just telling you, I'm just not. I, have no, I get no joy about building committees that do nothing. Prayer, proclamation, people. That's exactly what Jesus did. He was always communing with the Father. We call that prayer right? He's always proclaiming the good news of the kingdom to who? <gasps> People. Let's make it simple. By the way, I, I, I just had a thought. I remember my wife struggling with that when, when she was at home with Sarah and didn't interact with a lot of people, but then some older ladies gathered around her and said, well, sweetie, you're going to be proclaiming and praying. You are praying for this little girl. That is your ministry primarily right now. You have more room later, but right now that's your priority, your husband and these things. That's not loss. And you can bring that thought into every arena of your life, whether you're working a secular job, whether you're whatever. Is that how you think of ministry? I encourage you to do that. Because God is pleased with us through his son, Jesus Christ, you and I can now live in a way that pleases the Lord. Yes, we are pleasing to the Lord because the blood of Christ covers and all our sins. As far as the east is to the west, all our sins are covered as white as snow, right? A little dingy now, but the other morning, it was pretty sweet. What's the point? You, you and I are not to give God our leftovers. Think about your own life in a way that's not condemning. But sometimes you need correction. Correction isn't condemning. There's a difference. Time. I'll go to church, I'll go to missional community group, I'll do these things, I'll go to be in the Word and do the Old Testament thing, as long as I don't have anything else better going on. Talent. Well, I'll give my time, my talents, and energy, as long as it doesn't cost me much sacrifice. I mean, I don't say this to shame anyone. There were times in my life, if you were to look at my time, my talent, my treasure, you would not think I was worshiping Jesus. Because it was consumed by other things. Now, he's worked that out, and I have not arrived. Shocker. You hang out with me long enough, you'll be like, amen. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm striving 
And I see you guys striving. Why? So that he'll love us? Come on. Because he does love us. He already loves you. (laughs) Obedience driven out of a heart that understands I'm fully loved. I'm fully accepted. Why? Because of Christ frees us to engage. I don't have to be afraid. Why? Because all that fear and condemnation is gone for me. And if you're in Christ, it's gone for you. Well, then why would you do it? Because it's the best life. And that's what I've been trying and praying that the Lord would put in your heart and your mind that the surrendered life to Christ is the absolute best life ever. I, I would say this. It's impossible to worship Jesus without sacrifice. It's impossible. The giving our best, the giving our life. I'm going to say something, and I guarantee you, if, if you're a little bit like on edge, you might not like it. But then I'm going to say, all I did was reword something Jesus said, and then I'll tell you what that is. If your worship to King Jesus cost you nothing, that's because it's probably worth nothing. Hmm. If I was in your seat, I'd be like, that's how to preach. You're like, where do you get that? Jesus says, you worship me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Therefore, your worship is in vain, meaning it's not worth anything. Are you trying to make us feel bad? No. No. I'm trying to get you to enjoy life with God more. Why do I say that? Well, I say that because if you give yourself half-heartedly to the Lord, and and let's be real, we're half-hearted creatures. So the Lord's just working that out with us and with us. He's very patient, (laughs) way more than me. Thank God for that. But if you're not, if you're not, you have no desire for that life, even though you're wrestling with it, right? We're all wrestling with it, or you're not wrestling, right? But if you're wrestling, that's normative Christian life. Fight the good fight of faith. You've not arrived. I haven't arrived. I want to know you more. I want to love you more. I want to, I want to happily surrender some things in my life. Help me, Lord. I believe. Help my unbelief. But it isn't just some magic incantation. No, we say that because we really want that. And I would tell you, oftentimes what stunts people's growth in the Lord is you're not thinking enough. Where do you get that? Back to chapter 12 of Romans, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Why? So that by testing, you may discern what is the desire of God, the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Friends, there is no being zapped into Christ-likeness. It's a long journey of walking with God daily, patiently. Um, I'm going to read a quote to you from a pastor named Kevin DeYoung, and I think it's very helpful. It's very helpful, okay? He says this, You shouldn't take your spiritual temperature every day, okay? You need to look for progress over months and years, not minutes and hours. Why do I say that? Well, because I know some of you well enough to know when you leave here, you're going to have your head hung low, and you're like, I don't even know if I love Jesus. I was listening to the pastor. And, and I'm going to get inundated with 
emails and messages. And I'm glad to do that. We'll have coffee. We'll work through that. Hopefully you get to a place where you're connected with your missional community group enough that you can share it there and they can work with it. Some things require more. I get it. The reason this matters is because none of us have arrived, even those who you think have. My guess is you just need to spend more time with them. Emily lived in our house for a year, okay? She does not think Jessica and I have arrived. <laughs> if you want to ask her, ask her. Don't gossip. <laughs> but, you know, you, you can just tell the truth. She needed a place to live. And I said, well, I'm going to just let you know that, that discipleship's messy. It's messy. But, but we're aiming. We're, we're praying. We're hoping and trusting and knowing that this will happen. Why? Because God said it would. There will be a day you will arrive. You'll die or Christ will return. But until then, have patience, but be persistent. That's my encouragement. Um, this will require patience, but make no mistake about it, it's not a passive work. And that's what I'm trying to, to help you see. It, it, we engage. Why? Because we can. Because we've been engaged by Christ. And now we have his spirit. And, and so thankfully, the word of God, the spirit of God, are sufficient for the transformation that God desires in you. And here's one other thing I would add to that. It's not done by yourself. It's primarily in a community of God's people. So, friends, as we establish ourselves in God's grace, and as we believe the promises of God, and as we fight, and as we strive, and as we scrape, Make every effort to work out all the things that God's already working out in you. Right? And so we become what we behold. So friends, let, let us behold Christ every day. Let us behold the gospel every day. Let us be reminded of his great love as revealed to you and for you in Christ Jesus every day. That's what Christ is calling us to. Not half-hearted worship, but a life happily surrendered to him that magnifies his grace. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. And thank you that in salvation, it is all a work of you. And, and as we look at sanctification more, it's all a work of you too. But we do participate. That You give us this grace. You give us your spirit. And Father, it's all rooted in the finished work of Christ. So help us to be reminded in the moments where we start to think that I've not arrived. Be quick to remind us, we haven't. But Christ has arrived perfectly in our place. And so therefore we can rest as we strive. And if that doesn't make sense to the Christian brain, help us. Help us to understand that in a way that you are doing this work and we are just happily cooperating with the work you reveal. God, create in for the city church and all the churches in Greensburg and the world a people that are known by being radically Christ-centered and others-focused. Help us to love, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy more of our sermons Find out more information about For the City or how to partner with us through prayer and giving at www.forthecity.church. For the City exists to magnify Jesus by making disciples who share and show the transforming power of the gospel and plant churches that multiply.